Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalms 130. It's the verse that we're memorizing for, for this month, or however much time it takes us to memorize that. But commenting on that Psalms, James Montgomery Boyce, as he was writing his commentary on, on Psalms in general, as he was reading other people's works, he realized, or at least observed, that once writers got past Psalms 119, I don't know if that long of a psalm just, just wears the writer out, but they began to write less and less on the psalms that came after it until they got to this psalm. And then he noticed the writings began to grow larger and larger because of the content of the psalm. In fact, many of God's people in history would claim this to be their most loved psalm. And many record of John Wesley when he came to salvation, that that day he had heard the reading of Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. And it says it strangely warmed his heart. But what many historians don't record, that he was also that same day in St. Paul's Cathedral. And in that cathedral that same day, they sang the psalm as an anthem. And we've come to know that John Wesley was deeply moved by the words of this psalm. Martin Luther himself loved Psalms 130. He called it a Pauline psalm, along with Psalms 32, 51, and 143. Because for him, it offered the forgiveness of grace apart from human works. I've never worked through the Psalms 130 before. In fact, until he started memorizing it, if you had asked me what it was about, it's, I, don't, I don't know for sure. There's a lot of Psalms, and I've not been through that one. My motives were somewhat wrong at first because I thought, you know, I'm having trouble memorizing as I get older. And I thought if I understood the context of the psalm and the teaching of the psalm, it would help with the memory and the flow of thought. And it was mainly in case Pastor Joey looked down and said, nobody's saying that, Pastor Mike, give it a try. But Psalms 130 actually was an incredible psalms. And I want to look at it today together. At the front, it says a song of ascents in many Bibles. It's a title before it, meaning a psalm that starts and moves from a point of lowness to a point of height, from a point of complete despair to a point of incredible steadfast faithfulness. In other words, it goes from the bottom of the bucket or to the bottom of the pit to the heights of the heights. And I want to look at that today and four truths that come along with that. One, the first step in this ascent talks about the depths of spiritual bankruptcy and the incredible despair that comes with a realization that that's how we stand before God. It steps up from there to give us an understanding of what complete forgiveness is and the fear of God that comes as a result of forgiveness. And up to this point, I had not connected fear of God with forgiveness. It then steps up again to give us an understanding of the gift of of genuine faith and the steadfast endurance that comes with that. And in the end and at the last... It gives us an understanding of God's forgiveness, his steadfast love, our steadfast faith. And it gives us a hope that is sure and unending, and it doesn't stop there. 
it causes the Christian, because of all of that, to reach out past himself and begin to share that with other people. So I want to look at step one first, the depths of spiritual bankruptcy and the despair. So maybe ask the question, have you ever been at a point in your life where you would say, I was in deep despair? I was at a point, as the definition of despair says, complete loss and absence of hope. Didn't know where to turn. Saw no way out. Maybe we felt like we were in total despair, but we couldn't see the way out, so we felt like we were that. Maybe from a loss of job or a loss of loved one, loss of goods, Maybe the security of retirement began to dwindle and we hadn't even taken it out to use it yet. Loss of a romantic relationship. Maybe we're the victim of another's retaliation or brutality and there wasn't anybody there to help us. We didn't find anyone that could stop it. And Psalms is starting in 130 with with a deep despair by the psalmist. And it's because of a position he finds himself in. And the question we have to answer is, is it from suffering or is it from sin or could it be from both? Because those are usually the two objects of of despair as you go through Psalms. So we start in verse 1. It says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Or out of the depths is is a phrase. And it usually has the idea of being in deep waters, dangerously deep waters. In fact, why it makes it so dangerous is, is how long can you and I tread in water if we can't touch the bottom? And what kind of fear begins to come over us if we can't touch the bottom? Or if we do touch the bottom and we stick in the mud and we don't get sure footing to come back out, or nobody's around to rescue us or saves us, that's the idea that's being painted by the psalmist. Same idea is in Psalm 69, and it reads like this. Save me, O God, for the waters have come upon my neck. I sink deep in the mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me and I am weary with my crying out. This is a Psalm of David who's in deep despair. And if we go on, we find out his despair is. He has a lot of enemies. And in fact, his enemies are out to destroy him. And David's view of them are that they are mighty. And they are more in number than the hairs that are on his head, so he's overwhelmed. He's in deep water, if you would. He's in the depths. But, but his depths, his state of despair, is really fixed on a circumstances in his life that's outside of his control. And the only way he's going to go out of it is to look up. But right now he's just looking horizontal to what's sitting before him. So it's a circumstance that is causing this with David. But in Psalms 130, it goes beyond a circumstance. And we get a little bit of a clue as we read through it. In verse 2, we talk about the plea for mercy. Hear my plea for mercy. And that could be someone suffering from a circumstance, just asking God if he'd be so kind to take him out of it. But as you continue in verse 3, he says, if you were to mark iniquities, we're all in trouble. And it talks in verse 4 about the forgiveness of God. And then verse 5 about waiting for God in steadfast love to redeem not only him, but to redeem Israel. And 
These would all be terms we use when we're talking about salvation or we're talking about sin. And so it looks more that in the context of Psalms 130, the depths or the thing that is causing the deep, deep despair in the person's life is the sin that's in their life. The psalmist is unknown. There's no name attached to it. I learned from Brett as I was talking that these later psalms are in a category of ones that nobody knows the name to. Some think it's David relating to his sin with Bathsheba like like Psalm 51. But the reality is we're, we're not sure. But what we are sure of, his despair is from an understanding of the depth of his sin. And he's necessarily going to have to come for God as the way out. So this depth, you will, in our life that's being talked about is the depth we feel when we're in sin to the point that it overwhelms because we've come to the point we can't get out of it on our own. We can't come to God for forgiveness. Excuse me, we can come to God for forgiveness. But there's no way for us to pay or make restitution on our own. We are completely helpless. And we come to the recognition that there is only one that is actually able to help. And this is going to be God. This is going to be the Lord. Be like Jonah in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 1. And again, there's no accident that Jonah's in the belly of the whale or in the belly of the large fish. It's not an unexpected trial in his life. He knows he's been running from God. He knows he's in disobedience. Jonah begins by saying this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, or out of the belly of hell, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me, and again, it's interesting that he says, it's not the guys who cast him. He's saying, it's you, God, who cast me in the sea. You cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas and floods surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows have passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet yet here's the hope, even while in the depths, if you will. Yet shall I again look upon the holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from the life of the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away. Again, is it beneficial if God allows us to fall into this type of depth? Whether it's before we come to him to salvation so we realize the depth and the greatness of his forgiveness? Or if we wander from God and he puts us in this position, I think Jonah would say in the, in the end, well, maybe not. The, the, the end of Jonah is not always the best, the best read in the state that he's in. But if God puts us in that position, Jonah makes this statement, when my life was fainting away, I remembered you, the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple, hope inside of the depths. And those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, because it's only going to come in God. 
And so while we're in the depths of a, of a spiritual despair because we're recognizing the deepness of our sin before God, there's a recognition of the sin, a, a real recognition of the sin. And the end result is a plea for mercy. He says in verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my plea for mercy. In other words, I'm drowning in my sin. Lord, hear me. Not, not, not just let it touch your ears. This idea of hear is the idea of hearken, Lord, to me. Uh, listen with the intent. If we, if we use the same expression that's in Ephesians 6.1 about children obeying your parents, it's the idea of first hearkening to them or listening with the intent that you're already going to obey. And what you're wanting from the parent is clarity so you know how to act to please him. But in relation to God, and certainly the psalmist's not saying, oh God, hearken to my prayer because I want you to obey it and do what I'm asking because that's not how we come to God. But he's asking that God would please give him an attentive hearing. Please God, hear me. I'm pouring myself out to you. And I'm coming because I know you're the only one that can act on my behalf to rescue and save. And I'm pleading with you, God. Maybe something like this. God, please give consideration to my pleas, to you for mercy. I'm sunk without your intervention. No one else can rescue me from my sin and despair. That's why I'm coming to you and pleading for your understanding and pleading for you listening. The psalmist at a point that he's got no standing before God or merit. He understands that. That's part of the depths or the despair. It increases with verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I mean, if God were to take into account all of the thoughts, all of the actions, all of our desires, hidden to everybody else, and all of our actual outside actions and the motives with them that didn't meet up to God's standards, what would the result be? That no one could argue their case. No one could come out justified. We would all stand completely condemned. No merit on our own to help compensate for the demerits of our sin. Even if God were to take those that are to our account just from this morning after we woke up till now, we would still stand before God with no ability to argue except for those that are arguing on the blood of Christ and those that are standing in the righteousness of Christ. The parable that, that Brett read this morning helps us understand a little bit about the depths of sin that we're in. We read about the king wanting to take into account and take action on all the debts were against him. And the one that owed 10,000 talents, which was an incredible amount for that time and for our time. And because he begs for mercy, the king is kind enough to excuse all of his debt. And yet we find in the parable he goes out and takes another servant that owes him about three months' wages and begins to choke him and demand that he pay it back, and throws him in prison because he doesn't. And the other servants seeing this, they're distraught by what they just saw. 
And they tell the king, and the king calls him into question. And the point was in verse 35, because he would not forgive according to the extent that he was forgiven. It says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart, meaning because of the forgiveness we experienced. There ought to be forgiveness extended to the others. Here's another point to it that goes along with what we're trying to talk about in the depths. When you think about that 10,000 talents and you try and put it in today's terms, it would have taken that servant 200,000 years of labor to pay that back. That would be about 60 million working days to pay that debt back. He can't do that in multiple, multiple, multiple lifetimes. That's the extent. Some would estimate that it would be you and I on a daily average wage in America trying to pay back $3.48 billion before we died. Others have different figures, so don't take that as the most accurate one. There, There was lots of different thoughts. The idea was could never be paid back. No ability to pay back. And that we all stand before God just as this servant did in debt to God. And it it ought to cause despair. And it ought to cause a reaching out to God. Because God is the only one that's capable of eliminating that debt and forgiving it. So the psalmist feels this weight. And he's in the depths, but he's in the depths of sin and despair that came from that not just circumstances that have come into his life. Which brings us to step two. He understands that forgiveness is found in God. And he understands that it leads to a fear of God. He really connects forgiveness of God to fear in God or fear of God. So the psalmist is confessing his sin and he's crying out for mercy and he's desiring forgiveness And it can only be forgiven by God, so that's where his cry is. Our example is the prodigal son. As he leaves, and the father of the prodigal son is really our example of God. As he stands with his arms wide open, and he is already open to forgiveness, already desiring the prodigal to come back and to confess and to repent, because he's already standing to forgive. He says this, but with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Not only can God forgive because he has that right to, but God always stands ready to forgive because that's God's nature. We know that God's nature is mercy, and God's nature is grace. We know God's nature is holiness, so it demands payment. We know in his love he sent Christ. But God always, always extends forgiveness when someone comes to him in a repentant heart. 1 John 1.9 helps us understand that confession and repentance always comes before forgiveness. If we confess our sins or basically look at our sin the same way that God does, he is always faithful. He always keeps his word. And he's just and he's right to forgive. He's not just winking or just bending the corner or anything. He's actually just in forgiving when we come to him like that. 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's part of the application of serving a God that forgives and a God who forgives to the extent that he forgives you and I who are like the 10,000 talent servant being owed to him. We usually think of fearing God in terms of his majesty, his greatness, his holiness. With it comes his wrath and his punishment and the danger of hell and all all those things cause us to fear God. But that's a motivation that is secondary to this motivation of his forgiveness. God's promise of forgiveness And his actual carrying out the forgiveness is supposed to lift our despair over the sin and it causes what? Rejoicing, thanksgiving, overwhelming love, especially when we understand the cost at which he did that. But there's always a possibility that this initial rejoicing, thanksgiving, and overwhelming of love of God's forgiveness kind of grows commonplace in the Christian's life as we move on in our walk with God. Communion becomes, ah, I hope the sermon's short, and I am trying to make it short, so that communion doesn't go into a longer time, and next thing you know, you've just got this whole rotten attitude about communion. Because things can grow cold inside and we can get caught up into the world and the next event and everything else. The psalmist is teaching us that God's forgiveness should create an awe and a reverence. That's what it means to fear God. Not because of his power to punish, but because of his grace to forgive. It motivates us to holiness. Why? Why? We don't want to grieve the God that just forgave us. Everything that brought us to a point of despair. That's what the psalmist is trying to help us understand. That's the fear of God that he's talking about that comes with forgiveness. And with this also, steps three as we continue on the ascent is genuine faith. This is absolutely necessary for us to become in a position where we call out to God for help in a helpless state. We find in this verse that it produces steadfast endurance. He says in verse 5, I wait, O Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. There's something he knows about God that he's believing and he's trusting in, and it causes him to be able to wait on God Because God might not remove the consequences of his sin right then. In fact, God may not remove his consequence for his entire life. They stay with him. But he knows that God will forgive. He knows he'll be back in right standing. And it's that faith that produces joyful and steadfast endurance. I'm going to say as a side note that this genuine faith has three components to it. We call it saving faith. And it's the same faith that we live our Christian life in. It never, it never stops, this pattern. Begins with knowledge, something about God that we know. 
And we find that in his word. That's what, how we understand what salvation's about. It's how we understand what God expects from us. So it starts with knowledge. But then it moves to assent. Assent is the idea that I believe it's true. And in many of our minds we say, oh, okay, that's the end. But that's short of saving faith. It's more than just believing something's true. Because James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one? That's great. Even the demons believe that truth about God. And they shudder at that truth. Because this ascent and this knowledge has to move to this final spot, and that's trust. Trust is what produces the action with that belief. Trust is what's behind us moving out in genuine belief. Again, I know I've told this, but this is the best example that I, I can give for this idea of going from assent to trust. And it's with one of the LeBlancs Le, Le who crossed the Niagara Falls as a tightrope walker. Several generations, many generations before that, I, th- I don't know to what extent, but I believe the man was in that family. And he was doing a a demonstration of tightrope walking across two major buildings in a city and was doing all sorts of incredible feats on the tightrope. Only he didn't have anything attached to him like the one did across the Niagara Falls. And he makes the comment, or this was thrown to the crowd who was watching, do you believe that I could put a man in a wheelbarrow and wheel him across on this tightrope to the other side and back? And there were hands all over that said, yes, we, we, we believe that. Here's where it goes from assent to believe. He said, okay, who will jump in? No volunteers. So did they believe? Yeah, but I want to try it on Paul. Or I want to try it on someone else. The difference between assent and trust is jumping in the wheelbarrow. It, it, it is what produces the action that comes from true belief. He says in verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. And I'm with Pastor Joey. That is very nice that those two are sitting right there in that verse. It's, it's going to be a good one, easy one to remember. But it gives the idea that this genuine faith is going to produce intense desire for God. Like the watchman at nighttime who's sitting there all through the night keeping guard and he's waiting for morning sun because he's done with his duty. And it's over and there's, there's intensity waiting for that. Could also be a picture of the alertness of the watchman who's staying alert all through the night but he's waiting and desiring the morning light because he gets to be removed from the pressure of guarding the city. Either way, the idea is that there's, there's intense desire that's being developed. Trusting in God's word is true. The psalmist is once again in right standing with God. And now he longs with intensity for God's appearing. I mean, it's God himself that is, he is wanting and the fellowship of God that he's wanting. He is also hoping that the circumstances will be removed from his situation. But at the very least, it's, it's God that he's desiring and his fellowship. 
which leads us to the last step of the ascent. The result of being rescued from the depths of sin and being forgiven by God and the gift of genuine faith that brings steadfast and enduring hope. There's a desire that others will put their trust in God. It's the spiritual response to what's going on. Because the psalmist now turns to Israel. And he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And we know Israel's history. It was, yes, God, we accept your covenant. We sign on to your covenant. But we chase this God, and then we chase that God, and then we chase this other God. Had an interesting time talking to somebody I mowed lawns for while I was in college. And he was a devout Jew. But he had these Buddha statues all over his lawn that he brought back from a war. And I couldn't take it anymore. He knew, he knew I was a Christian. And I knew he was a devout Jew. So I had to ask him the question, so how is it that a devout Jew has Buddha statues all over his property? And his comment was, well, you know us Jews, we always go wandering after other gods. And we had to have a, a good discussion about the gospel, which he, which he ultimately rejected and came to the point where he said, I realize that if what you're saying is true, I will be going to hell. I realize that. But I'm still waiting for the Messiah. I'm still waiting for God to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. This particular Israelite who's writing the psalmist knows his people are outside of God and in disobedience. And because of his forgiveness and because of the steadfast hope he's experienced in the situation of the depths that he was in that God has taken him out, He could not help but turn to his fellow people and say, Hey, hope in the Lord. For in the Lord there's steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He'll redeem. He'll forgive. And we know there is a day coming when he will redeem Israel. Holy redeem Israel. And we have as the same assurance of what he'll do for Israel, we have the same assurance as an unbeliever when we come to God in despair over our sins. He will forgive. He will save and rescue. We have the same understanding and belief. If I'm a believer who walks away from God and I wander out into the world and I reject God to some extent, while everything might be okay and good on the outside, I know where my heart is on the inside. This same God who saved me is the same God who will restore me to a point of forgiveness and hope and enduring faith. And the cycle continues on through all of our time as Christianity. And here's the application it's just, there's just one at the end of this verse in, in chapter seven, or verse 7. All who have experienced the depths of sin, fully broken in despair, turn to God for forgiveness in Christ, and also any that have wandered away 
afterwards. And have experienced God's forgiveness as they came back and they were restored. The psalmist says it ought to motivate us out of fear for God because of his grace. It ought to cause us to go to other people. It ought to cause us not to sit back when we see a brother wandering or we see a soul struggling. It causes us not to stay in that depth of the sin and the despair that it's causing, whether before we're saved as we wrestle with God or after we're saved and fall into sin and wrestle with God. It ought to cause us to movement. And it ought to cause us to movement towards others so that they might experience the same thing and the same truth that we've experienced in God. Lord God, we are incredibly thankful that with you there is always forgiveness if there is true repentance. We are thankful, dear God, for your patience in not marking our iniquities against us because nobody would be here breathing today if you did that, whether before salvation or after. But we are incredibly thankful for your goodness Lord, may we be incredibly thankful for the steadfast assurance and love that you have given us in faith. Lord, may we be motivated, not out of fear for what you might do if we shrink away from you and do not obey you. But God, may we be motivated by the Christ or by the love that sent Christ to the cross. Lord, may that be the driving motivation in our life to your honor, and to your glory. In your name we pray.